Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I am Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you will hear our passion for the gospel and people's need to hear it, and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring. Today, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons in our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. You can simply send me an email at pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. We're going to be in Matthew 11, if you'll remember where we're at. And we're going to start in verse 12 of Matthew 11. Now, um, just a real brief review. John the Baptist sent some disciples to say, Hey, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus says, Yes, in, in essence, yes, I am. And uh, the men were going away And he starts talking about what the kingdom of God is like. And so we're going to read in John, I'm sorry, Matthew 11, starting in verse 12. And it says this, For the days, from from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who has come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what shall I compare, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Let's pray over our passage today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And God, as we think about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, I pray that we would maybe gather a little bit understanding today and we leave excited, for those who know Christ, excited to be in the kingdom, and for those maybe who don't know Christ, a desire to be in the kingdom. God, teach us today, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I like jazz music. Uh, it, it's a, a, um, some people don't because there's no music, and sometimes the music does weird things, but I enjoy jazz. And uh, there, was a, there was an article in the 2003 
um, uh, Atlantic some, sometime in 2003, the, the, the magazine or newspaper, The Atlantic, that I read about. Um, I didn't read it from The Atlantic, but anyway, there were, in a New York jazz club, they were just, they had a small group that was playing a, uh, a set and, and they were enjoying, the, there was audience that was enjoying the music and, and it was just a normal night, but then the, there was a little bit of excitement when this trumpeter came out and, and the audience slowly began to realize that the trumpeter was Wynton Mar- Marsalis, who is one, one of the better trumpet players, if not the best trumpet player alive today. Um, an African-American gentleman who, who teaches um, in, you know, he helps teach. He's not an actual teacher, but he goes into schools of, of areas that are poverty and teaches them music and the passion to make music. And so he, he got up on stage, unbeknownst to the crowd, and he begins playing. And they were playing a song, I don't know, but it was called, I Don't Have a Ghost of a Chance with You, which sounds like a real happy song. But anyway, um, it was this, this mournful kind of ballad. And he was playing, and you know, in jazz, there's always um, the solo time. So he was just knocking them dead. And they were, they were just in awe of his playing. And, and he gets to the end, and it's like his trumpet was saying the words, you know, very slowly and mournfully, I just don't have a ghost of a chance. And he stops, and it's quiet. And then it happened. Someone's cell phone went off, right? You, you know how that is. And it was one of those, the reporter says it was one of those uh, cell phones that are like all over the place, you know, and really loud and all sorts of sounds. And then they, they stopped it and, and the people kind of giggled and, and they started nervously whispering and, and Marsalis just stood up on stage silent. And then, you know, something that only he could do, he played the sound of the cell phone perfectly. And then he did it again. And then he started playing it, and he started improvising around it. And he started changing keys, and, and eventually he moved back into the song, and he got back to where he was at, and just did again, where, where it sounded like his trumpet was even saying the words, I don't have a ghost of a chance with you. And this time the audience stood up and just gave an ovation to him, because of just the skill and the way he handled that whole situation. And, you know, I've heard, and maybe you have too, a lot of reports of what stars do when someone's phone goes off in their performance. Um, some actors, sometimes they'll just get up and just yell at the person and embarrass them or, or whatever it might be. But he just handled this in the most unexpected way. And his performance there was just unexpected, right? No one showed up to hear this because they didn't know he was going to be there, to hear Wynton Marsalis play and then to hear that unique performance. You know, no one, no one anticipated that. But sometimes when the unexpected happens, it's a better experience than we could ever imagine. I'm sure someone in the crowd said, oh, that cell phone, it ruined everything. And it, and it probably did. But then to have that experience where he used that 
to bring it back um, was just a powerful thing. And that's kind of the topic we're addressing today, not cell phones in the worship service. That's another topic. But I'm talking about, um, about how the unexpected can bring the most powerful things in our life that we just don't know. You, you can remember when we were last here in Matthew, Jesus is addressing John's concerns about whether or not he's the Messiah. I, I talked about that. And, and I mentioned that Jesus acted differently than we expect. And that sometimes when Jesus acts differently than we anticipate, it stretches our faith. That's the last time I preached in Matthew. It was about four weeks ago. And, and today we expand on the topic of the unexpected nature of the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I talk about the kingdom of heaven, um, I've mentioned this several times. The kingdom, and when Scripture talks about kingdom of heaven, it's not talking so much about a place as it is the ruler of the kingdom. When, when we would say, maybe if you thought back in the 1200s or 1100s when there were kingdoms, we would say maybe a kingdom was a good kingdom or a bad kingdom. But they weren't so much talking about the land as much as the ruler of that kingdom. If the king was good, then it was a good kingdom. If the, bad, if the king was bad, it was a bad kingdom. And so when the scripture talks about the kingdom of God, it is really more about who the ruler is than it is actually about the place that the kingdom is. And it talks about kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. That's the same thing. It's just different ways to say the same thing. And Jesus is going to mention the kingdom of heaven here, and then actually moving forward in chapter 12 and 13, he will talk a lot about the kingdom of heaven. But kind of to begin this section, he's going to tell us about the unexpected nature of the kingdom. And when that unexpected nature is there, it's a better experience than we can imagine. And so let's see what this passage has to say about the kingdom of heaven. And what I want to say is this, that the kingdom of heaven is different. It's different than we expect. The kingdom of heaven is different than we expect because, first of all, the kingdom is freely offered to everyone, but it's difficult. The kingdom is freely offered, but, but it's, it's difficult. We see this in, in verses 12 through 15. Now, there's a couple of very difficult verses in this passage, and we're going to see if we can make some sense of it. But first of all, we see this, that the kingdom of heaven is difficult. It's freely offered, but it's difficult, and it's difficult because of this. Persecution follows the kingdom. I want you to think about that a minute. If you've entered the kingdom of heaven... You've accepted Christ. He is your king. The kingdom necessitates that persecution is going to follow. That's part of being in the kingdom. Look what he says in verse 12. The, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Now, this, this verse is understood by different people in a lot of different ways, and I'm not going to get into a lot of the, the, the technical stuff in interpreting it, but if you have an NIV Bible, and you set it right next to a New American Standard Bible, 
and, and you kind of read the verses and then looked at the footnotes, you would understand some of the difficulties that, that the interpreters have. The NIV Bible, in, maybe in the footnotes, it says this, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent men have been raiding it. And, and in fact, it might even say in the footnotes that the kingdom of heaven forcefully advances is what it might say in the footnotes there. And, 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 it, and it goes on from there where we have the, the New American Standard that had been on the, the screen that it suffers violence and violent men take it by force. force. Now, I don't, I don't think the NIV captures what the rest of Scripture says about the kingdom. I, I don't believe that the kingdom of God violently moves forward. That is, God isn't forcing himself upon people, whether they like it or not. It's not a violent act for, for the kingdom of God to advance. The Greek word violence here um, it, it's, it's the idea of power and, and you know, the kingdom of God is never violent it's never forced on anyone who doesn't want it and so what I would I put to you is this that this verse is saying that the kingdom of God it suffers violence that is to say when the kingdom of heaven is preached persecution follows in one, in one form or another. And Jesus says from the time of John the Baptist, the time he's shown up, to the time Jesus is talking, that persecution has occurred. And we've seen that in Scripture to be true. John was in prison at this time. He was in prison because he was preaching righteousness. And he, he was persecuted for it and, and the leader of the country at the time put him in prison because he called him out on immorality. Jesus is facing many critics. We're gonna, and if we continue in 12 through 13, we'll see that escalate. And it culminates in them killing him in a very brutal way because he is preaching something different they have this law that the religious leaders say, if you want to experience God, you must be this and do this and do it right and do it our way. And Jesus says, no, you don't. It's through me. And it relieves them of their religious authority and they're pushed back against it and they, they persecute him for it. And when the disciples begin to preach the kingdom of heaven throughout the world, every one of them will pay for it with their life. And we may say, well, John the Baptist was just exiled. He was exiled on a deserted planet, or a deserted planet, deserted island. And, and he was, um, that, that's a form of persecution. And he lived in a world where, where uh, John, John the disciple where he, he got, got old and, and the emperor at the time was severely persecuting Christians. Throughout the centuries, the kingdom of heaven 
whenever it begins to make inroads into a community or when it starts to, to change the lives of people because they're surrendering their life to Christ, persecution follows it. And it makes part of the kingdom, being part of the kingdom, difficult. It's hard to sell that. You know what I'm saying? I know we're not salesmen. We're not, when we spread the gospel, we're not, we're not salesmen. But I'm saying it's hard to say, you know what? Give your life to Christ. Because the minute you do, things are going to go rotten for you. <laughs> right? It won't, but it's, it's that once you give your life to Christ, persecution is going to come and follow you. And friends may disassociate themselves with you. And family members may not want to talk with you. And people are going to think you're one of those, those Jesus freaks or a Bible thumper or one of those nut jobs who, who believe in religion or whatever they might say. Being part of the kingdom is difficult because persecution follows the kingdom. But the kingdom of heaven is difficult as well because it's hard to understand. Look at verse 13 through 15. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's, he's talking about how, how difficult it is to be in the kingdom, and then he starts explaining some difficult concepts to his disciples. And he first says that the prophets and the law that these disciples have known throughout their lives, they've heard it preached since they were little kids, and they heard these prophets and the, and the teaching in the synagogues by the, by the rabbis, and, and they were memorizing Scripture, and, and they, they sang Scripture, and all this stuff, everything that they heard, it says, was pointing to Jesus. He says, all the stuff that you've learned, it's about me. Not about me, but about Jesus. Standing before them. This man who was standing before them, he says, it all was prophesied up until John, because John could go, this guy is, is the one we've been looking for. And that's difficult. That would be difficult to, to wrap your mind around. After centuries and centuries of of prophecies, and then these people learning their whole lives that this person standing before him is the fulfillment of everything they know. And then Jesus refers to Malachi 4.5 that says there's a prophet coming in the spirit of Elijah. And he says if you'll, if you, if you'll you know, be able to wrap your minds around it, I'm telling you John the Baptist is that person. He's not saying, by the way, and you need to hear this, he's not John, he's not a, John the Baptist is not Elijah reincarnated. There is no reincarnation. It is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. That's what Scripture has to say. It's not a reincarnation of Elijah, but Elijah did some powerful works, and he says John the Baptist is going to come, and he's going to prophesy and, and point to Jesus like Elijah did. And so he is fulfilling that ministry. In fact, Malachi finishes by saying there is a prophet in the spirit of Elijah who is coming. And then God is silent 
what we, what we say is silent, for 400 years. And the next thing we hear is him announcing that John the Baptist is going to be born. The, as we read through Scripture, we say, yes, he's the prophet that's coming in the spirit of Elijah. He's going to be like him. He says, I understand this stuff's difficult to grasp, Jesus is essentially saying, and that's why he says in 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, listen, I know you're hearing these words, but you got to understand them for these people. You have to understand that these prophets were pointing to Jesus, he says. So the kingdom of heaven has some very difficult precepts to grasp. It's, it's hard to understand the Trinity. But, but we have to believe in the Trinity to be in the kingdom of God. If someone says, I don't believe there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, then they're not within the realm of Orthodox Christianity. They believe a different gospel. There's some difficult concepts to grasp there. If someone says that, well, I'm, I believe Jesus died for us, but he only died as an example, not so much as a substitute, that, that I don't really believe that he took all my sins and then he died in my place. If they believe that, they believe a different gospel than what the scripture has to say. It's difficult to grasp that, that all my sins, my past, present, and future sins were all wrapped up, laid upon Jesus, and he died for them. And not just mine, but the whole world. And that I am completely, wholly forgiven. Some people don't want to believe that. And they'll say, well, I'm forgiven up to this point, and so i got to keep doing stuff to keep that forgiveness. Or they think, God can never forgive me. The kingdom of God has some difficult concepts to grasp. And we can go on and on about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And I don't know how they work together. Because they don't, the two don't mesh, but somehow they do. There's some difficult things. And we're not just to gain this information into our head. It's not about just being able to expound on them and teach them and become an expert on them. The kingdom of God is difficult because we're called to take action on that information that we receive. It means something if Jesus died in my place. It it means something. It means something if, if there is a trinity, and there is, since there's a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that means something, and I should respond in kind. A lot of people says, I've heard this, I just want Jesus, don't give me any doctrine. All that doctrine I don't need, I just want Jesus. Everything we believe about Jesus is doctrine. Everything we believe about God is doctrine. And that doctrine either lines up with Scripture or it doesn't. And we need to hold fast to what the Scripture has to say. And the kingdom of God is difficult because it says things that are hard to get our minds around and hard to convey. The kingdom of God is freely offered, but the kingdom of God is a difficult way to live. It's not not health and wealth. 
It just isn't. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 10, at the beginning when Jesus starts preaching, he says this, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people who receive the kingdom, the people who are going to enter into the kingdom are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He's saying when you accept Christ, what we would say maybe now, is that when you accept Christ, persecution follows in some form. And, and he, is, he is saying that who is in the kingdom of God. But, you know, telling people the kingdom of God suffers violence and violent men take it by force isn't the most popular message. It's not. It doesn't sell, you know, a lot of Christian merchandise. Uh, for $39.99 and a 30-day money-back guarantee, you can order a cube where if you push a button, Joel Osteen will give you a positive thought for the day. It'll say one thing. It'll say, God's got this. And then there'll be a message with that. Or it will say, hold on to your joy. And then there'll be a, a nice message with it. And he'll tell you how to get to a position of increase. He'll speak. He will tell you how not to speak negatively because those words are bringing death into your life. He'll tell you how to um, be healthy and wealthy and 365 days, seven days out of the year, you can push a button and get false teaching right at your fingertips, right? And that's not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the story of making wins, Y'all know Macon Wins? You probably don't know her. Lady from the 1500s. 15, I want to say 37. Let me check my notes. 1573. Macon Wins was arrested in Antwerp, Belgium. She was, a, she was an Anabaptist. And she and four others were attending a Bible study. And in April of 15... 1573, I don't know what I was saying, but 1573, she was arrested. Her husband was an Anabaptist minister, and he was a Mason by trade, but he was a minister. Anabaptists, this is what they believed. They, that literally meant rebaptizers. okay? In that day and time, in the 1500s, you were Catholic, or you might be uh, like a Presbyterian um, there, was some, there was the Reformation that was going on, and some of the countries had their own religion. So if you were in Germany, you were probably a Lutheran. If you were in, I don't know, um, I don't know where some of the countries were, but if you were in this country, you might be a Presbyterian. If you were in this country, you were Catholic. You were born into that country, and your nation and your, your religion were tied together. You were what you were born because of, of your faith, I mean, because of where you're located. And so the Anabaptists were part of the Reformation that says, when we look at Scripture, this is what we see. We see people who come to know Christ, and then they're baptized 
afterwards as a sign that they've come to know Christ. And they were called rebaptizers because all those other religions that are, uh, they're not religions, all other denominations that we talked about, they, they would baptize as a baby. And there's some, there's some disagreement within, uh, within those who are truly Christian about that, and we can have good discussions. I mean, R.C. Sproul is, was an amazing teacher. He's passed away now, and I love listening to him, but we disagree about infant baptism. That's, you know, and we can do that as Christian brothers and sisters. But, but what was going on in the 1500s was that if you were rebaptized as another like you came to know Christ and were rebaptized, it was thought that you were tra- you were a traitor to your country. Because if you're Lutheran and then you're rebaptized, you're not only saying I'm not Lutheran, you're saying I'm not German, right? And people were having real problems with these rebaptizers. And some of the first time in history, Christians began to persecute other Christians because of, of this type of stuff. And Macon Wins was arrested, and she was put in jail with these four others, and for um, like six months, it was about six months that she was, she was interrogated and persecuted and tortured to reject her faith. And she sat in jail for six months, not able to see her son, her 15-year-old son, or her three-year-old son, or her husband. And she, she was in jail, and on, finally on October 5th, 1573, Macon and four others, and she was arrested with, were sentenced to be burned at the stake. The next day, their punishment for being baptized after they came to know Christ was to be burned at the stake. And so the next day when they were ready to be taken to the stake, they took, the the executioner came into the jail and they put on each of these people what's called a tongue screw. And I'm sorry about this, but this is kingdom life. A tongue screw is two pieces of metal that are hinged together. And there's a screw on one end of it. And they would put it on the tongue of a person and they would take that screw and turn it down till it pinched them so they could not talk because one of the most powerful testimonies that were given when someone was being persecuted is that those believers would proclaim their faith while they're burning at the stake. And they said, that's not going to happen. So they put the tongue screw on, make and win, and then the executioner burned the tip of the tongue so it would swell up and not fall off. And they led her out to be burned at the stake, and her 15-year-old son, Adian, came out with with the three-year-old. And as he saw his mom go up to be burned at the stake, he passed out and couldn't handle the stress of that. And he, he, he was passed out the entire time. And they lit this woman on fire and she burned to death for her faith. And when the son woke up and the ashes of his mom was at the stake, he walked up to the stake and looked through the ashes and got her tongue screw as a memorial for her. 
because she died for her faith. That's kingdom life. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't have that level of persecution here, but we wear our tongue screws voluntarily, don't we? Where we're like, I'm not, I'm really not going to share about Christ. That's the story about a kingdom, a story about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and violent men try to take it by force, but it can't be taken over because God empowers people, empowers us like make and win. Who would, if we were going to be tortured for our faith, would stand and say, I'll speak as long as I can, but even in my death, I'm going to honor my Savior. It's not pushing a button and hearing, oh, God's got this. Yeah, he's got it, but that's too simplified of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is offered to everyone out there. It's offered to everyone here. But it's offered to everyone you know, everyone you see today. The kingdom of God is freely offered, but it's difficult. It's not an easy sell to say, to follow Christ, and you may have to die for it. But you know what Scripture says? Scripture says that what happens on this world isn't the main event. (laughs) It's not. This is not all that is. You know why Macon Wynn could stand there and be burned? Because she knows this world was not her home. This is not all that there is. This is not what we are looking forward to. So yeah, there are times, there are days that, that things aren't as great here as what we want them to be. That's the plan. I know it doesn't, I'm not trying to minimize our trials, but this is not the end goal. If the kingdom of God suffers violence, why would anyone want to enter it? Well, it's because what the word of God tells us about violence and suffering and the trials we face in this world. Listen to these verses and and put violence and persecution and trials and sufferings, put them into perspective what these scriptures have to say. Look in Romans 8, 18. It says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, look what it says, are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed to us. As bad and terrible as it was for making wind to die that way, that's nothing compared to what she experienced seconds later when she entered the kingdom and it was, welcome home, good and faithful servant, right? There's nothing compared to that. Look what it says in 1 Peter 4, I mean, sorry, no, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for momentary light affliction. And he's not saying that all affliction's light, he's saying in comparison, For momentary light affliction is producing for us, 
Look what it says. An eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This momentary light affliction. And Paul, you got to remember what Paul dealt with. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten within an inch of his life. He was thrown rocks at until they thought he was dead. He, was, he was, had to sneak out of cities because people wanted to kill him. He was bitten by snakes. He, was, he, he, had a, he had a rough go of it. And he says, this momentary light affliction is producing in me this load of glory that I can go into heaven with and say, look what you did through me, God. Look at this load of glory that's all yours. It's just putting it in comparison, putting it in perspective. He says in, second, I'm sorry, in 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, talking to believers, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. He says, don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. But look what it says. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that the revelation of his glory, you may, take, you, you may rejoice with exaltation. I read of another martyr. I'm trying to remember who it was, and I don't, but I remember it said, oh, I gave it on Thursday night, at, and, and it was Queen Mary uh, killing a reformer, and he walked up to the stake he was going to be burned at, and he bent down and kissed it because he was sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And it says here, that you keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory you may rejoice in exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're not blessed because you say the right words and then good things come to you. It says in Scripture here, if you, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, that brings God's blessing. That's what we should look to. The kingdom of God suffers violence here. But when we enter the kingdom in heaven, when we, when we, when we enter in God's presence, the, I think the way Scripture talks about it is that the real, reality of this world is going to be like a faint dream. Like, you know... We'll recognize one another, but it's almost like, you know, I remember this place where there were some people who were mean, but I, I'm, it's fuzzy. I don't remember it. It's like a dream when you wake up and you're kind of scared, and then you, you, after about 10 minutes of being awake, you're like, I, I know it was a bad dream, but I don't really remember what it was about. That's kind of how Scripture talks about this world. Yes, we're going to remember it. We're going to know each other. But the glory that we will have because of Christ's work in us. It's not us. It's not our resolve. It is our faithfulness. It is Christ working in us and our faith in that. I'm not, I don't want to make light of your suffering. 
And I'm not minimizing the trial that you're going through. I'm not saying it's momentary, and I'm not saying it's light. Because it may have lasted a long time, and it may be heavy here. But the Scripture tells us, put this all in perspective. Because there's going to be a day where it will not seem that way. When viewed alongside the glory of God, the the glory he gives you now, the glory he'll give you in eternity, there's no comparison. The momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Kingdom of God is available to all, but it's difficult. It's difficult. And we also continue to read that he says this, the kingdom is available to all, but not on our terms. The kingdom of God is available to all, but not on our terms. Look in verse 16 through 19. And follow me, what, follow what he's saying here. The kingdom, what, what, to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. They say, he's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. They say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus finishes by saying, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. He's, he's comparing the, the people of the day, the, the religious leaders really, to children. To children who are really having a temper tantrum. Okay? So, so picture this. There's a kid who wants to play a game. And he's out in the market square, and he says to the other kids, we're going to play a game. We're going to play a wedding game. And I'll play a flute, and you all rejoice and act like we're going we're to have a wedding. And they start playing, and no one wants to play with them. No one says, well, there's no wedding. We're not going to celebrate a wedding. There's no wedding. Okay, fine. We're going to play another game then. We'll play a funeral game. I'll play a dirge, and you act like the professional mourners who all cry, and they cry, so they get more people to cry. And, and we'll, act like, we'll act like there's a funeral going on, and the kids play a dirge on their, on their flute, and and no one plays with them. So the kid in anger flops himself down in the middle of the square. See, it says he's sitting in the square, calling out to their children, I want you to play with me, and I want you to play by my rules. That's what he's saying here. The kids want to play a game, and this one kid is trying to get the rest of the people to play with him, and they won't do it. They say, we want to play kickball. We don't want to play wedding or whatever, you know. And they're like, we're going to play kickball. He's like, no, you have to play wedding. You have to play my way. We don't want to play funeral. I don't even know what that's about. That's weird, you know, kid. We're not going to play funeral. We're going to go and play baseball because that's fun and not about death, you know. And so the kid has a fit. And Jesus is making the comparison of these children who want to play the game by their rules, and they say, That's what you, this is what the religious leaders are doing of this day. This is what the people are doing. 
Because John and Jesus did not play by their rules, right? And that's what he says. John came, and he didn't eat or drink because he, was, he, was, he took a Nazarite vow, is what a lot of people believe, and you know, that's why he had the hair and the, and the strange clothes, and, and he had the strange diet. And so he wasn't doing what they wanted him to do, I mean, if he was a religious leader, he would, he would take of the wine and, and eat the meals, and he would be like them, and he wasn't like them. And they said, so he's not like us. He's not playing by our rules. He must be a demon because he's not eating and drinking the way we want him to eat and drink. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus says, okay, you want to eat food? Uh, he eats he has wine. He, he's, he's always partying. I mean, and I don't mean partying like we talk about today, but he's always at someone's house, and they're always eating and, 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 and drinking, and he's enjoying being here. And yes, he's around people who need him. He's around tax collectors and sinners and, and people who, you know, the religious leaders didn't have any, any dealings with. So he was eating and drinking. They wanted John the Baptist to do that. Jesus did it, and they said, no, 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 no. You're eating and drinking, but you're not playing by our rules. You're with people you shouldn't be with. And so here's the point. The religious leaders were acting like children who were upset that they were not responding the way they wanted them to. They wanted the kingdom, and they said, we want the kingdom of heaven, but we've set up these rules of how we're going to get there, and we want to play by those rules. And Jesus says, those rules don't make any sense. That's no game we want to play. Here's how you get into the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he spends chapters 5, 6, and, and 7 of, of Matthew telling us what the kingdom of heaven's like. You don't go out on the corner and pray so everyone can see you and, and see how great of a guy. If you want prayer, kingdom prayer, you go into the closet where no one can see you except the Father. You want to give to the poor, give to the poor but not in such a manner that everyone sees what's going on. He, te- he gives all these instructions kind of of this is what the kingdom is like and it's nothing like these rules that these children want to play. And so what, what we are saying is, is this. The kingdom of heaven is not available by any means that you think you can get there. The kingdom of heaven is available to everyone, but not on your terms. It's on God's terms. It's called surrender. It's saying, I want to enter the kingdom, and I don't know how, so I'm going to give up everything. I'm going to give up my preferences. I'm going to give up my desires. I'm going to give up my my lusts and my my loves and and anything that Christ doesn't want I'm going to get rid of it because I want him more than anything else I want to be under his kingship it's about surrender 
And a surrender isn't, I'll give up, but, (laughs) right? I'll give up, but I'm going to keep this, and I'm going to keep doing this, and I'm going to have this. That's not surrender. Surrender is, I give up, and whatever you say goes. And he finishes by saying, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. It's a very similar statement to, by their fruit, they'll be known. Uh, He says, time's going to show that John the Baptist and Jesus, yeah, they weren't playing by their rules, but what they're doing is godly. It's going to be shown to be such. And that's because they were responding to the call of God on their life instead of trying to enter the kingdom of heaven on their own terms. On July 16, 1945, Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, and Harry Truman gathered together in Potsdam, Germany to to figure out how to end the war with, with Japan. Germany had already uh, surrendered and, or, and, and they, they tried to figure out there's this, still this war with Japan. We've got to figure this out. So on July 26th of 1945, the Potsdam Declaration was issued. And I might be saying that name wrong, I'm sure. I always slaughter those German names. And, but anyway, it was issued to Japan. And it said this, you must unconditionally surrender. At the end of the document, this is what these countries said. It says, We call upon the government of Japan to proclaim now the unconditional surrender of all Japanese armed forces and to provide paper, I mean, proper and adequate assurances of their good faith in such an action. And then it says this the alternative for Japan is prompt and utter destruction. This is July 26th. They said, You must surrender. The next day, government officials gathered to to discuss it, and a government-issued statement, they said their response would be mokusatu. It means killing killing it with silence. These countries said, we will destroy you if you don't surrender. And they said, we're going to ignore that. We're going to say it didn't happen. We're not going to even pay attention to it. That was July 27th. On August 6th, 1945, a United States B-29 flying fortress named the Enola Gay dropped an atomic bomb on a little atomic bomb known as Little Boy over the city of Hiroshima. And the blast, they figured to be about the same as 15 kilotons of dynamite. It immediately killed 66,000 people. An additional 69,000 were injured. That's at least the report that I heard. They said, surrender unconditionally. And they said, we're uh, we're going to ignore you. So there was a bomb that was dropped. And it immediately killed 66,000 people. It was like, I don't know, what, three times the city, of of the population of this city, give or take? I don't know. I know it's not exactly, but immediately killed them, 69,000 others. After the bombing of Hiroshima, President Truman made another appeal to Japan. 
And he said, um, this is what he said. We are now prepared to obliterate more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise that Japan um, have above, uh, the Japanese have above ground in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, their communications. Let there be no mistake. We shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July 26 was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. The next day, the Japan people gathered and discussed whether they should surrender or not. They said, well, maybe, and here's the deal. They were saying, we really want our emperor to still be emperor. And one of the terms was, the emperor will no longer be the voice of Japan, the people will. That was the United States and the allies, I mean, uh, all the allies, their, their deal was the emperor is no longer going to be the voice of Japan, the people will. And so after Hiroshima, after those people died, they gathered together and said, do we really want to surrender We's like our king. Three days later, August 9th, Japan got word that the Soviet Union had broke their neutrality pact and declared war upon Japan. And so now they were fighting the Allies and the Soviet Union. And then later that day on August 9th, there was another atomic bomb dropped. This one a little bigger, called Fat Boy, that man is dropped on the city of Nagasaki. 40,000 people were killed from the blast. Another 60 to 80,000 people died from the long-term health effects. Following the battle, uh, I mean, the bombing of Nagasaki, Truman made another statement. He said this, We have given the Japanese people adequate warning of what is in store for them. We have laid down the general terms on which they can surrender. Our warning went unheeded. Our terms were rejected. Since the Japanese have seen what our atomic bomb can do, they can foresee what it will do in the future. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war, only a Japanese surrender will stop us. And after this, the Japanese emperor got in a group and discussed whether they should surrender or not. <laughs> you get where I'm going? The military wasn't for it. There was a military coup to try to take over to keep from... from Surrendering, And one military government, gover, government official asked the emperor this, Our majesty, you must also bear the responsibility for this defeat. What apology are you going to make to the heroic spirits of the imperial founder of your house and your other imperial ancestors? They said, you can't surrender because all your, you're going to disgrace all your ancestors, all these people who are already dead, so you can't surrender. During this time, there was a P-51 pilot who was captured and was being interrogated pretty severely by the Japanese. And it had come, and, and under, this, under this interrogation, this P-51 pilot told them, 
which was a lie, but he told them, we have a hundred of those bombs and we are ready to destroy Kyoto and all of Japan. Now, it wasn't true, but under interrogation, he told them that and they believed him and they went to the emperor and they said, they've got a hundred of these things or more. We have to surrender. So after a lot of debate, like I said, a failed coup d'etat, the the Japanese emperor announced on the radio that Japan was surrendering September, I'm sorry, August 15th, 1945. And on September 2nd, 1945, the emperor of Japan signed the Japanese instrument of surrender on the USS Missouri. General MacArthur standing there watching over the ceremony. And after that, World War II was over. VJ Day. Whether that's August 15th or September 2nd, I think it's celebrated both days. The Allies demanded unconditional surrender from the Japanese. And the Japanese didn't like the terms. They were not going to yield their kingship up to another. And I'm not trying to get into politics or all that. I'm trying to make the spiritual connection of someone who says, I want to enter the kingdom, but I'm going to keep me as king. And it just doesn't work. And if you're in the kingdom, if you are a believer in the kingdom, and, and then you have wandered away and you are making you the king of your life, I would anticipate atomic bombs in your life going off until there is a surrender to Christ. Because... God will not have a co-regency with anyone. He is king, and he's the only king. Their refusal to surrender cost over 100,000 lives in the bombing, maybe 150,000 in injured and later dead. And even after those devastating losses, and that's not counting the war and all the fighting, I'm just saying, after all those losses, they continually debated the terms. The kingdom of God is offered to all. Anyone can enter. But it's only available through complete surrender. It is not on your terms. You can't say... I want to go to church. I'll I'll make the deal, God. I'll go to church once a week, and that's it. That's not not the deal. I will will, uh, pray on a regular basis. I want want heaven. I'll pray on a regular basis. That's, That's not the deal. It's not your terms. God wants all of you. Everything about you, he wants It is a complete surrender. So, here's our takeaway. God has issued a demand for unconditional surrender. I'm going to have you bow your heads. God has issued a demand for unconditional surrender. How are you responding? Are you trying to figure out how to surrender but on your terms? I'll give up about 80% of my life to you, God. But I need to keep this one little part. I need to keep my job mine. That's not what he asks for. 
Is it going to take an atomic bomb dropping in your life and shaking you at the core for you to surrender? Or will you willingly surrender to him? Heavenly Father, God, all of us, myself included, me at the front of the line, want to surrender more of my life to you. God, we are thankful we live in a country where we do not suffer persecution. Not really. Masks are not persecution. People talking about us or saying negative things about us, that's not real persecution. Not like some of these folks have endured in history. But God, sometimes it's difficult for us. So first, God, I'd ask you for strength for each of us, that we'd, be, we'd have your strength and the courage to stand against the violence that comes against the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men t- try to take it by force. And, and God, we ask for the strength and courage through you to keep our stand, to be faithful to you. And God... Surrendering with, you know, unconditional surrender is difficult for our sinful hearts. And you know that. You've been tempted in all ways, yet without sin. So you sympathize with us. God, I pray that you would help anyone here who has not fully surrendered to you first in salvation. But God, if there's a believer who's got areas of their life they need to surrender, God, I pray that you would Help us to turn that over to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father.